You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. The full text on which today's teaching is based is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. A story to get us all thinking in the right direction. Some of you will know this one, the story of Collier Mansion. It's the stuff of legend and the legend of stuff. Homer and Langley Collier were brothers. They lived in Manhattan in the first half of the 20th century. The Colliers were the sons of a distinguished family. Both boys went to Columbia University, Homer receiving a degree in law. Langley, a degree in engineering. The Collier brothers worked for a while, but gradually they stopped and became more and more comfortable in their home. As time passed, they had very little contact with the outside world. They allowed their phone, gas, electricity, and water services to lapse. They even began ignoring their tax and mortgage bills. Homer eventually went blind. And after that, he hardly ever left the house. Langley took care of him, and he too stayed indoors most of the time. But occasionally, Langley would go out late at night to gather food and an assortment of other items that they needed. The neighbors neighbors began to take notice of the amount of stuff the colliers were accumulating. Rumors circulated. The word on the street was that these men were filthy rich and had stashed piles and piles of money in their house. And so there were numerous break-ins. But the burglars, the burglars were never able to find the cash because once inside the house, they discovered that there were mountains and mountains of stuff to sort through. In 1947... A caller alerted the police that someone in the Collier mansion had died. After a day's search, the police found the body of Homer, sitting bent over with his head on his knees. But where was Langley? It took workers 18 days to find him. The house contained what in the end was said to have been more than 170 tons of stuff, toys, Bicycles, guns, chandeliers, tapestries, thousands of books, 14 grand pianos, an organ, a Model T Ford, a canoe, 
and heaps of other things. The rooms in the house were packed almost to the ceilings, imagine it. Almost to the ceilings, and this great mass of possessions was pierced by tunnels. Langley had dug tunnels throughout the mansion and then set traps in these tunnels to stop the burglars. And it was in one of those tunnels that his body finally was discovered. He was bringing his brother some food when accidentally he set off one of his own traps, entombing himself. Eighteen days they searched for Langley, and finally they found him, buried beneath his belongings, suffocated by the stuff he tried so hard to protect. True story. Today we're returning to our series called Deathly Devices. In this series, we've been looking at the seven deadly sins, better called the seven capital vices. And in particular, we've been looking at how our devices today awaken within us these vices. Today, we're focusing on the fourth vice, avarice. Avarice. Like we've done each week, we'll start with an anatomy of the vice itself. What is it? What does it look like? What does God's Word teach us about its power, its dangers? Then in the second part of the talk, we'll think about our devices and how they awaken this vice within our own hearts. And finally, we'll talk about some spiritual practices to counter this vice's power. So first, the vice itself. And today we'll begin with a simple definition. Avarice is the desire to acquire. The desire to acquire more and more. The avaricious person chases creature comforts, thinking they will satisfy his deepest desires. She is consumed by the quest for wealth, possessed by the thought of more possessions. Countless characters in film and literature have embodied this vice of avarice, but none so clearly, I think, as the villain of Charles Dickens' ghost story of Christmas, Ebenezer Scrooge. Dickens describes Scrooge as a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. See, avarice, avarice is a condition of the heart that shows itself in the hands. How is Scrooge described? Tight-fisted, squeezing, grasping. When you love money, you can't let it go. When you're avaricious, all you want to do is get more and more and more, but you can never think about giving. Now, the Bible frequently warns us about the dangers of avarice. One of the clearest passages is that one that I read just a few moments ago when Paul writes to his apostolic delegate Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's break this passage down and think about it for a few minutes. Look at verses 6 to 8. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now notice here in verse 7 how he identifies the point of entry into the world and the point of exit out of the world. And he pinpoints that at both of these moments we're empty-handed. We're empty-handed. When you came into this world, you had nothing with you. And when you leave this world, whenever that day comes, you will take nothing with you. 
mindful of the impermanence of our possessions, we should then be content with the basics, the necessities of life. A roof over our head. Bread on the table. Shoes on our feet. That's what Paul says in verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now notice he doesn't say here, we have food and clothing, to have more than these automatically is sinful. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The issue here is desire. Remember I said avarice is a condition of the heart that manifests itself in the hands. You see it in the hands, but it goes down deep into the heart. It's an issue of desire. And that's what Paul goes on to develop. This desire for more, it leads to dangerous places. Dark and dangerous places. First look at the desire. Those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money. Again, the language of desire. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, again, the language of desire. This craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who live for money, they think... That if I just get more, if I can just have more money, I'll have everything I need. But what they discover is they don't have more money. The money has them. The money has them. There's a downward spiral that Paul talks about here. If you desire to be rich, you fall. You fall into temptation. In a sense, you lose control of yourself. Now, how does this work? How does this play out in real life? Well, think about it. If you think money will solve all of your problems, then you'll do anything to get it. You'll do anything to get it. You'll do anything to anyone to get it. You'll hurt people emotionally, maybe even physically. You'll exploit others if they get in the way of your wealth. It's a destructive desire. You lose control of yourself. You fall, you plunge into ruin and destruction. Paul goes so far as to say that some people have even wandered away from the faith. They've turned their backs on God. They've stopped loving, serving, worshiping Jesus, and instead, they worship money. And all for what? All for what? At the end of their life, they discover that they will leave this world empty-handed. The same way they entered it. With respect to our possessions, there are only two possible outcomes. They will rot, or you will. Jesus illustrates that point vividly when he tells a story in Luke chapter 12. A passage that we looked at several weeks ago, so I'll just summarize it for us today. It's the parable of the rich fool. The story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a farmer whose land produced plentifully. Now, did you catch that? It's subtle, but it's important. When Jesus tells this story, he says the land produced plentifully. Plentifully. He doesn't say the farmer produced plentifully. Jesus gives ultimate credit for this good year to God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of life. But the farmer can't see that. In this case, the farmer has a great year. He has so much of a surplus that he can't even store it all. 
So he comes up with a savvy business plan. It really is a savvy plan. He decides to tear down his current barns and build bigger ones. That's a far better plan than building additional barns because then he would have eaten up uh, ground that could have been used for farming. So he knocks down his current barns and he builds larger ones, better ones, bigger ones. Bigger is always better, right? So the farmer thinks. He goes about his construction plan and then at the end of it all, he thinks that he has done everything necessary to secure his comfort presently and for many years to come. In fact, he even says it in the story in verse 19 of Luke chapter 12. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. What harm could possibly come my way now with a barn like this, with possessions like this? Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So many other things the farmer could have done with this surplus. He could have shared with his neighbors. He could have seen in that surplus the hand of God entrusting him with the ministry of generosity, but not once does he think of anyone other than himself. And then one day God comes to the farm. It's the only parable that God steps into as an actor in the narrative himself. God comes to the farm and he says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And these things, these possessions that you've prepared... Whose will they be? Whose will they be now? The question lingers, and the farmer disappears. With respect to our possessions, there are only two possible outcomes. They will rot, or you will. We came into this world with nothing. We will leave this world with nothing. Again and again, the Bible warns us about the love of money, the pursuit of money, the desire to acquire more and more and more. But we know that that's not the only voice we hear. And it's probably not the loudest one. Because today, everywhere we turn, we hear a very different message. We hear the message that what you really need to be happy, the ticket to the good life is more money, more possessions. And our devices play a dominant role in that. I want us to think now about how our devices cultivate this vice of avarice. Now, to understand how our devices awaken avarice in our hearts, we need to spend a few minutes thinking about the people on the other side of our devices. I want us to think this morning specifically about the influencer industry. What do you want to be when you grow up? That question has been asked of children for years and years and years. But now it has a new number one answer. I want to be a YouTuber. A 2018 study of children ages 8 to 12 found that 30% of kids in the United Kingdom and 29% of kids in the United States aspire to be a vlogger or a YouTuber when they grow up. The number one answer followed by teacher, athlete, musician, and astronaut. That one's still hanging on. (laughs) But it's not just the kids, folks. It's not just the kids. A similar study conducted in 2019 found that 54% of teenagers and adults under age 40 would be a digital influencer if given the opportunity. Now, why do so many children, so many teenagers, so many young adults even, why do we aspire to be 
an influencer? Well, because an influencer, that lifestyle that presents the possibility that we can just take pictures and make videos of ourselves doing the things we enjoy and share them with the world and make a little money in the process. It satisfies our vain glory. Others will see us. We'll have that attention, that affection our hearts crave, and we'll make some big money in the process. We can understand the appeal of it. It's no wonder the influencer lifestyle has greater appeal than the teacher lifestyle. The influencer, though, is decidedly a 21st century occupation, right? This is pretty new. You ever wondered how do we get to this point? I want to ask you for a few minutes here. Hang with me on this. Don't go rearranging the furniture of your mind, okay? This is important. I want to help you see how we got here, and more importantly, how it's working on us. How it's working on us. If we go back to the inception, we'll get a better grasp of how it works on us today. Emily Hund, I reference here a new book of hers called The Influencer Industry. Emily Hund is a research affiliate at the Center on Digital Culture and Society at the University of Pennsylvania. In this new book of hers, she offers a critical history, what she calls it, a critical history of the influencer industry's formative years in the U.S. in order to rise to power. Tracking its development from a haphazard group of creative people searching for some extra money in the face of the Great Recession to today's multifaceted, multi-billion dollar industry with expanding global impact. Now, Hunt argues that at the first decade, at the end of the first decade of the 21st century, there was a perfect storm of what she calls technological, cultural, economic, and industrial factors that all came together to contribute to the rise of this influencer industry. I want to summarize each one of them in just a couple of minutes here. First, the technological factors. The advent of software like Blogger and WordPress made it easy, even for non-tech-savvy people, to publish material online. Social media sites like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube emerged, making the process of sharing information, connecting with people easier than it had ever been before. Listen to this. In 2005, only 5% of American adults used a social networking platform. Only 5%. Within 10 years, nearly 70% did. Spread like wildfire. Technologically enabled entrepreneurship also became popular as sites like eBay and Etsy enabled global commerce. So that's the first part. That's the technological factors. Second, the cultural factors. These technological changes gave people direct lines to publics they had never had access to before. And it even harmonized with the cultural valorization of entrepreneurship, the increasingly individualized nature of work that had already begun to take hold in the 90s. So as institutional distrust festered, the millennial generation now had new options. Options for independent work. I don't have to work for someone else. I can work for myself. Third, then there were the economic factors. As millions of people lost their jobs in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis, you'll remember it, many under or unemployed individuals, especially the creative types, turned to the internet and its burgeoning social media platforms to network, to build their reputations, to seek employment. And then finally, the industrial factors. 
the economic crisis expedited media industry shifts that had been approaching since the launch of the commercial web. Think of how journalism has changed. Journalism was becoming a less viable career already because of job opportunities drying up. Advertisers were searching for more effective outlets than print establishment. In the digital influencer, they found a new hope. Thanks to their personality-driven content, influencers offered advertisers audiences that were conveniently segmented. Here's the way Hunt puts it in her book. For a clothing brand looking to advertise their size-inclusive line, the loyal audience of a woman in her late 20s who creates focused blog and Instagram content on this same topic offers a clearer targeted opportunity than the print pages of Glamour. By 2010, retail brands understood that these digital content creators offered direct lines to the buying public, power they had never seen before. In ensuing years, the influencers, marketers, brands, technologists involved in all of this, they created a whole new ecosystem. A whole new ecosystem in which people encounter information and products. Influencers offer seamless integration of content with the ability to shop. This is what I want you to see. This is what all of this is leading up to. Here's the way Hunt puts it towards the end of this part of her book that I'm summarizing. And what many experts refer to as a post-ad world where consumers avoid blatant advertising. Influencers provide companies a crucial means of getting the pitch to the public. Hund writes this, while many influencers identify themselves as being fueled by passion and their work being a creative outlet, collectively, collectively, they are marketing juggernauts and vital components of the retail system. Now look, I know that's a lot, but here's what all of it means. Don't miss this. It means that from the influencer's side of the screen, as they are looking out at us, the viewer, we are economic assets. We're economic assets. The influencer industry monetizes relationships. They love the idea of authenticity because that's what allows them to have this seamless integration of content and shopping. Let me give you a real-life example. This will make it a little more real for us. In our home, we sometimes watch a YouTuber named Brixie. Anybody ever heard of Brixie? We watch Brixie pretty regularly. He is a self-proclaimed AFOL, adult fan of Lego, all right? An adult fan of Lego. Every day, Brixie descends to his basement where he has built an epic Lego world. And every day in his videos, he builds something new. He contributes to that Lego world. Brixie has a real name. It's Jordan. He's a pretty affable guy. He's got a family. He's Canadian, but we won't hold that against him. Canadians have given us lots of good stuff, maple syrup. That's about all. He seems like the type of guy that if you ran into him on the streets of Canada, if you ran into him at the hardware store, he'd be friendly. He's an affable guy. And you know what? He's not trying to sell us Legos. There aren't all these commercials where he's trying to sell us Legos. He just builds Legos day after day after day. And you know what my sons are saving their money for right now? 
Legos. What's happened there? There are no commercials because Brixie is the commercial. He is the commercial. In a way, the brand and the influencer, they're intertwined. In a way, the two have become one. Who knows where Brixie ends and Lego begins? As one other professor, as a professor at the University of Paris puts it, today, all is advertisement. We must see this. All is advertisement, or to put this somewhat more cautiously, there is no part of our most important technology products and services that is kept as a safe space from the commercial interests of the companies that own them. See, this is one of the things that's unique about our day. Marketing, advertising has been around since the beginning of civilization. It's nothing new. On the other hand, you used to have a very easy way to opt out. If we're talking about mediums like the newspaper or a magazine and you want to opt out of the ads, just turn the page, right? You skip that section. But now all is advertisement. All is advertisement. It never ends. And that's not the only unique feature of our day. When my grandfather read the newspaper, he never had to worry about the newspaper reading him. Now, advertising works very differently. It's bi-directional. That epic digital biography, remember that I referenced a few weeks ago, that's being built, one for you, one for me, one for all of us? That's used against us. Now, those on the other side of the screen, they know. They know your inclinations. They know what you've been shopping for most recently. They know what people like you shop for. They know the times of day or week that you're most likely to take a bite. This is what makes our day unique. This is the power our devices have. We have to see it. Only then can we figure out if we need to do something about it or not. We must see it. If we don't, we won't hear what the Bible is warning us about. We won't hear all of those warnings about avarice and the desire to acquire because all is advertisement. We'll be utterly convinced by what the world is saying that you need more. You need more money, you need more stuff, you need more possessions. Only then will you be happy, only then will you be beautiful, only then will you be fill in the blank. So what do we do? What do we do about all this? What spiritual practices will counter the power of avarice? It's not as simple as some of us might think. It's not as simple as if your income is below a certain level or if your square footage of your home is less than a certain amount, then automatically you're free of avarice. It's not that simple. You can be wealthy without being greedy. Conversely, you can be greedy without being wealthy. So it's not that simple. To demonstrate that we are not being enticed by avarice right now and to protect against future temptations to love money, we must give. And in two ways. Here's how we'll close. We must give. First, give thanks to God. And second, give generously to others. And those two are connected. I think there are two reasons that we don't give, and both of them have to do with sweat. The first has to do with the sweat of hard labor. 
See, we work hard for our money, don't we? We work hard for our possessions, and therefore it's hard to let them go. We begin to think, I earned this. I earned this status, this salary, these possessions. I sweated for this. We fail to see that God is the giver of all good things, including the opportunities we have, the talents we have, the intellect we have. It's the land that produced plentifully, not the farmer. When you find yourself feeling a little prideful, a little greedy, remind yourself of all the opportunities that the Lord has given you. What if you had been born in the Solomon Islands? What if you had been born in Europe in the middle of the Black Plague? Everything down to the place of your birth and the timing of it and all the talents you have, all that is thanks to God. So we must give thanks to Him first and foremost. That then frees us to give generously to others. The Bible calls us to give sacrificially, regularly, and joyfully. Very brief here. Sacrificially. What does it mean to give sacrificially? How do you know if you're doing it? C.S. Lewis says, you know you're giving sacrificially if there are things you want to do but can't do because of the amount of money you give away. Very simple, right? There are things you want to do but can't because you give so much of your money away. Let's do a little thought experiment. Let's pretend that later today, suddenly the world gets access to your financial records. They see all your accounts. They see your spending habits, but they don't know anything else about you. What conclusions would they draw about your character, about your priorities? Is there anything about your money management that would suggest that you are a follower of Christ? What would they conclude? We're called to give sacrificially. We're also called to give regularly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, don't give under compulsion. Don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Here's what he, what he means by that. What typically happens is when a pastor preaches a sermon like this, there's a lot of people sitting out there in the pews, chairs, whatever, that haven't been giving, and now all of a sudden they feel guilty. They feel guilty. And so for the next few weeks, giving will be really good. They're giving out of guilt. They're giving under compulsion. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't be the person who gives only when the pastor preaches on avarice and it's antidote being, antidote being generosity. Don't be that type of person. Give regularly, habitually. Generosity should be built into our budgets, in other words. And finally, the Bible calls us to give joyfully. It's not just the gift that matters. It's the heart of the giver. It's the heart of the giver. Now, that's common sense. We know that. Ladies, think about this. If your husband comes to you and he says, I've got a gift for you. I've given it to you because this is my duty. It's pretty expensive, by the way. So don't expect another one anytime soon. That's scenario one. Scenario two, your husband comes to you, exact same gift. Exact same gift. And he says, I'm giving you this because I love you with everything I've got. And there is nothing I would rather do than give to you. 
Scenario two is way better, isn't it? Same exact gift. Way better. It's not just the gift. It's the heart of the giver that matters. See, when we give this way, giving thanks to God first and foremost, and then giving generously to others, it shows that the gospel has taken root in our hearts. We are becoming more and more like the God who gives, the God who gave us life, the God who gave us on Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in our place for our sins. He is a generous God. And so when we give generously, it shows that we're becoming more like Him. It shows that we know Him and that our hearts are free of avarice. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these convicting words that we've read together this morning in 1 Timothy 6, elsewhere where you are calling us to be people known for our generosity. How could we not be? Because God, you are so generous. And so if we belong to you, if truly we are your people, then we will not be driven by a desire to acquire more and more for ourselves because that's not who you are, God. You gave everything for us. Help us to be more like you, to see the needs of those around us, to give sacrificially, regularly, and joyfully with joyful hearts, hearts transformed by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.